Exodus, or at least the first half for the first half of this, uh, or for this, for this Lenten season. Um, so I wanted to mention, um, it, it just again, thank you so much for, uh, for Andrew uh, to be here. Um, uh, next week, um, <laughs> I get to kind of play to my strengths a little bit uh, in that one of my best friends from high school uh, is Dr. Matthew Fisher, who is a PhD in microbiology, uh, who actually works for the University of Baltimore, um, working with uh, disease control and viruses. And so I'll get to play to my strength. When you have a friend like Matt, Matt I, I, I was like, well, um, gosh, this seems to be on the hearts of everybody, this coronavirus stuff. Let's, uh, he's going to actually be here with us next week. We're going to kind of have a little bit of uh, interview with him during our prayer time and just talk to him about perspective on, on this uh, coronavirus and, and how we can be um, kind of grounded in, in truth with it. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, if you're not there yet, please turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're, we are starting a new series today, uh, which is called An Inheritance of Freedom. Uh, it's a new series for a new season this new season of Lent. Did you know that it was Lent? Uh, Lent is the season of the church calendar that leads up to Good Friday, where we consider Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, and Easter, where we celebrate his resurrection and the resurrected life that we have in him. It seems like only yesterday that we were studying Galatians, uh, and here we are a year later diving into Exodus. So this year for Lent, we're going to go through the first half of the book of Exodus. Why only the first half? Well, I hope you'll understand as we kind of go through it. But basically, the first half tells the story of the Exodus itself. It's essentially the story that you're, you're probably most familiar with because it's the part of the movie that you've actually stayed awake for. Um, I, I remember as a kid watching the Ten Commandments on TV every year around Easter it seemed like there were like 10 minutes of commercials every five minutes. Uh, so the movie must have gone on into the early hours of the next day. I never stayed up for it. So I only ever uh, saw the first half up until a few years ago. No, the first half of the book of Exodus is that story of bondage to deliverance, or we might say from, from bondage to bonding. It's the story of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. We'll see God hear the cry of his people um, and then call an unlikely character to lead them out of slavery. On Good Friday, I'm looking forward, we're going we're, we're, we're to look at the story of Israel's passage through the Red Sea right alongside the story of the crucifixion. And on Easter, we'll, we'll look at this compelling poetic song of praise that Moses sings after that passage through the Red Sea alongside the story of the resurrection. For those with ears to hear, let them hear. And, and for now, though, as we, we start this season of Lent, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we are about to dive into this story of slavery and salvation. And it wouldn't be fitting to begin this story without first acknowledging and confessing those things that are on our heart. Lord, we confess our sins to you today and ask that you would lead us this Lent season through a time of sanctification and redemption in our own stories. We give you our fear. We give you our anger. 
We also give you our joy and our praise, and we humbly ask that you would reveal yourself to us in compelling ways that change our hearts, that that lead our hearts to be more like you this season. And it's in the most holy name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen. So, Exodus. Get out of my house. Exodus. King of the hill, anybody? Anyway. Uh, Chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. A few years back, like 19, ouch, um, a song came out by a a guy named uh, Brad Paisley, if you like country music. It was called, Two People Fell in Love. The, the first verse of the song quickly tells this story of a, of a baby born in a local delivery room and the parents take him home and they raise him up until he graduates high school and then he graduates college and then he gets a PhD and he makes incredible medical discoveries and he saves millions of lives and this boy wins the Nobel Prize and is celebrated for this incredible life and the singer says, you know, it's funny when you think about the reason he's alive is all because two people fell in love. Then the second verse paints this picture of this giant family reunion where where four or five generations of the family gather together each year at a park, and they all drove in from like 15 different states, but they come together regularly because they want to stay connected, and they want to introduce each other to their, their families, and it's all because two people fell in love. It's a little sappy, but, but it's an important principle for us to be consider as we enter into this book of Exodus. Eleven of the twelve tribes of Israel came of their own accord after famine had affected their land. As the text said, Joseph had already been there and had developed a special reputation in the land as one who was able to manage Pharaoh's affairs. Joseph, of course, had not come to Egypt of his own accord. He had been sold into slavery by his brothers. The book of Genesis ends with forgiveness and reconciliation with with this family. And and now, numbering 70, they enter this land that is not their own. But because of Joseph's connections, the people increase and they multiply until they fill the land of Egypt. And we might say that that was because, well, all because two people fell in love. Well, which two people? Well, maybe it was the reconciling love between Joseph and his brothers that, that allowed for their family to be together again. Or, or we could go to the brother's father, Jacob, who years early, earlier fell in love with the, the beautiful Rachel. The problem there is that the story of Jacob's courtship to Rachel essentially plays out like something from Days of Our Lives 
Jacob falls in love with Rachel, but his father-in-law kind of tricks him into first marrying Rachel's sister, and then their handmaidens come into it, and you soon get the making for a very awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Now, I, I think that the real all-because-two-people-fell-in-love principle should be traced back all the way to God and his people, or, or better yet, God and humanity. Here's the short short version of the book of Genesis. God creates a beautiful world and populates it with a humanity that he intends to live with in intimate union. That intimacy is broken by humanity who break their covenant union with God and begin to spread evil in massive proportions. Then God calls one family to be the rescue mission to save the world. He tells that family that that he is going to bless them so richly that through them the entire world will be blessed. He tells them that their descendants would number like the sand in the desert or the stars of the sky. And we hear stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And the story ends with them all living in Egypt and numbering around 70. That's episode one. Episode two, Exodus, imagine like the Star Wars, anyway, begins now with the transition of Israel as a family to Israel as a people. The language that we get in the first section of chapter one is that they were fruitful and they increased greatly. They were fruitful and they multiplied. Does that remind you of anything? Genesis. Way back at the beginning of Genesis, in the creation story, God instructs humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Now, in the first seven verses of Exodus, we first get this little bit of language that A, connects it back to Genesis, B, shows the passage of time, and C, notably excludes a very important character. Who's not mentioned here? God. God's not there. God is somehow absent from this first seven verses. To continue the Star Wars analogy, you might recall that at the beginning of the original trilogy, like the first movie that came out, the Force was like a mystery, right? There were some who believed in it, but there were others who just kind of thought it was like something of a myth. That's kind of what's going on here. Notably absent from these opening seven verses is God. The thing is, I think the writer of Exodus is hinting, though, at another crucial principle when they mention that the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. I think that's telling us that God was still on the move even after all this time. In fact, I think that the the sort of quote from the book of Genesis is, is drawing us into the thought that God was continuing his work of creation through the people of Israel. Remember that God's Holy Spirit spoke life into creation and his creative energy just sprang life into being into a dynamic fashion. By dynamic, I mean that Jesus, I mean, I mean, I mean that life, <laughs> I mean that life gave way to life. He didn't just create a world that was like static 
and done. He created a world that was dynamic and growing. But that creative order was disrupted by humanity's rebellion. And God needed to respond appropriately to that rebellion. But that didn't stop the creative force of God, of God's Holy Spirit, from moving throughout history in a way that was best defined by Him. And now it seems like the story is saying that there is something so important about the people of Israel that all of creation somehow hinges on this people. Even though it seems like Israel had allowed their trust in God to grow stale, God was still on the move, and he was still preparing his people for the season of turmoil that was about to come. You see, God, the God who redeems, has been at work in life-giving ways all along the journey whether the people realize it or not. I didn't come to faith until I was uh, around middle school. But, but I can look back at the decade before I came to faith, and I can see that even though I didn't realize it at the time, God was powerfully on the move, preparing me for what was to come. And even after I came to faith, I can look back on seasons of my life where God was preparing me for something that didn't play out until years or decades later. Like my friendship with Dr. Matthew Fisher, you'll see next week. My ability to perceive his plan of redemption for my life didn't actually affect its progression. Our God is never absent. And he's always on the move in ways that we couldn't possibly fathom. I love this Bob Goff quote. I just saw it this week. He says, we know we're growing when we let God replace who we thought we'd be with who he thought we'd be. Continuing on in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I've already made two Star Wars references, so let's go for a third. There's a scene in The Phantom Menace when Anakin Skywalker, who later becomes Darth Vader, is meeting with... Spoiler alert, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. 
He's meeting with the Jedi Council as a little boy, um, and they're trying to decide whether or not he's going to be a Jedi. And at one point, Yoda asks him how he feels, and Anakin says, cold, sir. They all give him that that's not what we meant look, and one of them mentions that Anakin's thoughts are dwelling on his mother. He admits that he misses her, but then Yoda tells him that he has to be mindful of his feelings, and Yoda says, hmm, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) afraid to lose her you are. And Anakin says, what's that got to do with anything? And in a moment of uncharacteristically brilliant dialogue on the part of George Lucas, Yoda says something that sums up the entire Star Wars saga in one line. Everything. What does fear have to do with anything? Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. I mean, read slowly through that little speech that Pharaoh gives his people. First, notice that Pharaoh has already separated his people from the people of Israel, even though they've lived together for generations. Pharaoh has already, at least mentally, if nothing else, allowed Israel to become other. Pharaoh says, there is us, and there is them. And then we hear this little speech. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies, and they're going to fight against us, and they're going to escape the land. What? Whoa, hold the phone. This speech is dripping with irony, and more importantly, it is dripping with fear. You're threatened by a group of people. I get it. They're different. They have a different culture. They have a different set of values. It's one thing to allow one family to live in the land, but now they're they're being fruitful and they're, they're multiplying. It's a threat. I get it. And living with them is going to take a change in the status quo. Things can't keep going the way that they have always gone. If they keep growing, this group of Hebrews might just overthrow the preeminent superpower of the ancient world. I mean, how frail did Pharaoh think Egypt was when fear grips a society? It can lead to all sorts of darkness. Pharaoh instructs his people to deal shrewdly with them because Yoda was right. Fear leads to anger because he's worried about them multiplying even more and then a war could break out which isn't beyond the realm of possibility and then they'll join Egypt's armies and fight against them and then we get this really weird detail that evidently Pharaoh was worried that they'd escape the land. You were worried about them leaving? This is like the playground romance, right? I'm worried that they won't like me, so I'll throw rocks at them until they show me attention. Pharaoh was so gripped with fear and anger that he was not only not thinking rationally, it never even occurred to him that there could have been another way. 
ways that were actually for the benefit of he and his people. Fear blinds us to this truth. Fear blinds us to the truth, and it often cripples us from advancing our own good, not to mention from doing what's right. I realize it's pure speculation as to what Egypt and Israel could have accomplished together. But I think the principle is is crystal clear as we see it here in the first chapter of the story. That is, it is outrageously crucial to the identity of Israel that humanity's darkest moments were a result of fear that had gotten out of hand. As we see the story of the people of Israel, the story of the church, the story from, of creation to, to new creation, the, the real the bondage here, right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, seems to be the bondage of fear. And it is something that we've seen throughout the course of our own history. Slavery, the Crusades, colonization, the Trail of Tears, Nazi Germany the civil rights movement, 9-11, all a result of individuals and then groups of individuals, societies who had let fear cripple them from seeing a better way. And then we see this image in the third chapter, or the third section of chapter one, that gives us another picture of what we might call a different sort of fear. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, um, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The Hebrew midwives feared God. Oh, look at that. God enters the story, and he enters the story because of two courageous women who are named, which is extremely important, that, the, that, the, that these two courageous women would be given names, and the king of Egypt isn't even given his title all the time. Again, this passage is dripping with irony. Two Hebrew women who are named outwit the unnamed king of all Egypt. And they come up with this lie, which apparently God honors. And Israel is placed not only under bondage of slavery, but are also the victims of the slaughter of innocent children. 
it would appear that although God's creative spirit continues to move throughout redemptive history, that does not mean that there aren't consequences to the actions of humanity's injustice. Still, this principle of the fear of God is present throughout Scripture, especially in in wisdom literature. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Hebrew midwives had a fear of God that was intimately connected to the principle that human life is sacred. And because of that kind of fear, which we could also say is trust or maybe even faith, God honored their choices. So what lessons does this teach us about civil disobedience or about the sanctity of human life or even that choice to lie even though later in the book Israel is going to be commanded not to bear false witness? Well, first and foremost, the principle needs to stand that God desires to play his part in the story. Human power will inevitably fail. Pharaoh was so blinded by hatred at this point that he didn't realize that he was killing off his own labor force. You see, the story of Exodus is the story of bondage to bonding, bondage to slavery to bonding to God. On the surface, it's a story of how Israel was delivered from slavery and was pointed in the direction of the promised land, bonded to God. But but looking at this text today, that principle of bondage to bonding has deeper meanings, right? He, here we have this choice that is laid out before us between what we could say is two kinds of fear. The first kind is what we could call maybe, I don't know, fear proper. It's, whether it's rational or not, it has this crippling effect that will lead to dark corners of human existence, such as anger and hate and suffering. It was the fear of Pharaoh that led to his enslavement of people, of human beings that, that mattered. And unfortunately, this is the story that we've seen over and over again, and tragically, even in the name of Jesus. But the second kind of fear is the fear of those Hebrew midwives. Their fear was fear of God, was trust in God, faith in God. When we say someone is God-fearing, we mean to say that their, their morality, their ethics, their choices are grounded in the reality of God's sovereignty, grounded in the reality that God is on the throne. If you really believe that God is on the throne, that should have an effect on how you engage with the things that are threatening and the things that are complicated. The solution Jesus gave us is that our primary filter as Christians should be this two-sided coin of love, loving God and, and loving others. You can't do one without doing the other. Did you know that? You can't really love God without loving your neighbor as yourself. And you can't really love your neighbor as yourself without loving God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of the power of love, but of, but of power and love and self-control. In Christ, we have the upside-down power to affect real change in this world through sacrifice, through sacrificial love. 
In Christ, we have the freedom to love others the way that God wants us to love them. In Christ, we're called to live a life of self-control, not reacting out of fear, but responding out of trust and love. And think about the heaviest issues of our day. Poverty, the refugee crisis, abortion, capital punishment, gun control, immigration, and a political system that just becomes more polarizing by the day. These issues need to be discussed because they matter. We can't turn our back on them. But when we do engage with them, we need to ask ourselves, are we reacting from fear, from a place of fear that seeks to do harm to others? Or are we responding with a love that comes only from God, from His broken world? I think we could look no further than social media to see how fear does indeed lead to anger, and anger does indeed lead to hate, and hate, unfortunately, does lead to suffering. Rooted in fear, we'll find ourselves more and more and more enslaved to sin. But rooted in the trust of God, who has always been at work and always will be at work, knowing that God is on the throne and knowing that when we live a life of sacrificial love, reaching out a hand of help, welcoming the stranger, have creating a, an environment of hospitality, not just in our churches, but in our, in our country, as we look to other people and say that they're not others and we actually welcome them in to the Lord's table and we say that there's enough room for all, please come, that, that is a, this image of sacrificial love and we find that our inheritance has always been an inheritance of freedom. It's like the, the prodigal son or his brother, what the father says to the brother, he says, didn't you know Everything was always yours. Are you, are you worried about losing out? Are you worried about, about not getting my blessing? Didn't you know everything that I've had, every blessing, every bit of love has always been yours. You're now free to reflect that love back into a broken world. You're free to inherit freedom. Let me pray for us. Father, as we enter into this Lenten season, I ask that you would make it crystal clear to us those things about us that stand in opposition to your kingdom. We confess our sins. We confess the fact that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole strength. And we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Father, I ask that you would hear our repentance, that you would see our repentance, and then you would respond with, with, with strength and courage that you give us to live a different way, a way of sacrificial love, a way that's, that's not going to reach for the easy weapon of, of the pointed rhetoric or the pointed thing that is going to try to attack my brother, but no, actually understand them 
to get to know them because in getting to know them better, we get to know you better. Father, we ask that you would help open our eyes to the freedom of love that you have laid before us and and cast out this fear into the darkness. Help us live a life with you on the throne, loving others the way that you would have us love them. I ask that, that you would do a work in us this Lenten season, that you would awaken us to your Holy Spirit in ways that we haven't seen yet in our lives. I'm praying for for this 2020 Lenten season, that this would be something that years from now we look back and say, 2020 was the year that I really started taking things seriously, that I really started taking the love of Jesus Christ seriously. I pray for anyone in this room who has not yet given their life to Jesus that this Lenten season would be a time that they can consider, do I need to get off the fence? Do I need to to come down and, and to be a part of this church, to trust and have faith in God alone who can heal them and redeem them, reconcile them back to their holy God? Father, I ask you to do a move, to move mightily in this church, in this New Hope Community Church. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ.